0: Hello and welcome along to the message today. Uh, thanks for joining with us, whether you're at church uh, with, the, with the others able to gather there or at home in a home hub, uh, thanks for joining along for this message today. Uh, Tim McLeavy is uh, sharing with us the message today. When I asked Tim if he'd uh, be willing to, to, to preach today, I had a chat with him and I said, what is something that has really blessed you in your life and your faith and something that, that has really meant something to you? And his answer straight back was Hebrews, uh, before the throne, draw near the throne. And so that's what he's, he's bringing the message on today. I'm going to hand over to him. I trust it will be a blessing. Hello, it's lovely to be with you again this Sunday morning and uh, my uh, message this morning is entitled, Draw Near to the Throne of God with Confidence, reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 and 5, 1 to 3, and starting at uh, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also was beset with weakness and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people so also for himself. We have a merciful high priest in verse 16. Jesus is our great high priest. Greater than Aaron, he passed through the heavens and is seated on heaven's throne. Though he was tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Should we be afraid of him? Should we fear to approach him who is so great? Should we fear to approach him? who is so pure and holy. If you remember, that was the reaction of Israel at Mount Sinai. God showed himself to be great and God showed himself to be holy. The mountain was shaking. There was thunder, lightning, fire. The children of Israel begged Moses to talk to God and leave them out of the picture because God scared them so much. However, the author of Hebrews says the opposite. He exhorts God's people to draw near to his throne of grace. In Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Remember, some of the original Hebrews were drifting away from the faith and returning to their Jewish roots in chapters 3 and 4. Hebrews compares them to Old Testament Israel, who, in spite of God's warning, forsook the covenant and were cut off from the promise. So the letter to the Hebrews warns them not to be like old Israel. Hebrews warns them to listen to God's voice and not to harden their hearts, or else they too may be punished. And knowing their Old Testament scriptures, these Hebrew Christians knew that when God promised punishment, he meant it. He punished Israel with 40 years in the wilderness. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was turned into a leper for rebelling against Moses. Aaron was was forbidden to enter into the promised land, and even Moses fell short and was not allowed to enter Canaan. Telling us what exactly? Telling us that when God promises punishment, he actually means it. Those Hebrew Christians knew that they could expect punishment if they left God. Were they scared? Of course they were scared. This letter to the Hebrews tells them what to do. Approach the throne of grace. Instead of leaving, come to Jesus. Instead of staying away from Christ, draw near to him. Draw near to his throne. Come to him in prayer. Come, asking for grace and mercy, forgiveness and redemption. No need to be scared, no need to panic, no need to flee. Just come to Jesus. In the Old Testament, the common people were not permitted to enter the holy precincts of the tabernacle or the temple. The priests could only go as far as the veil. The high priest alone went beyond the veil and only on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 but every believer in Christ is invited and is even encouraged to approach the throne of grace. Yes, Jesus is our high priest. Yes, Jesus was tempted as we are, but he was without sin. We can not only approach his throne of grace, but we can do so with confidence. Let us then, approach the throne of grace with confidence. This does not mean that we draw near arrogantly, demanding forgiveness as a right. We draw near in humility. We draw near as penitent sinners crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We draw near because the person and work of Christ gives us confidence. Come to Jesus and you will receive mercy and grace. Mercy means that God does not give us what we deserve because what we deserve is hell and punishment and God's wrath. Come to Jesus and you will receive mercy. Come to Jesus and you will find grace. Grace means that God gives us what we do not deserve. What we do not deserve is forgiveness and redemption and everlasting life. Come to Jesus and you will find grace. None of the Old Testament Israelites dared to do anything like this. None of them dared to come to God for help. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we can go to our high priest in heaven at any time, in any circumstance, and find the help that we need. So the question is, why did God wait so long to send Jesus into the world? Have you ever wondered why God planned such a long history with Israel before sending his son into the world to die for our sins? It would be a big mistake to answer this by thinking that history runs on its own power, and that God has been trying to get it to do what he wants it to do for centuries, but just couldn't bring it off. So that's why it was 2,000 years between his choosing Abraham in Genesis 12 and the coming of Christ in the book of Matthew. That would be a mistake for two reasons. One is that the Old Testament pictures God as ruling history not frustrated by it. For example, the prophet Daniel says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. Daniel 2, 20 to 21. So kings don't rise and fall on their own, And times and epochs of history don't change on their own. God governs all. King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this the hard way. But after he was driven insane by his own pride, he praised the true God and said, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4, 34. So it would be a mistake to think that history, running its own course and God would allow, just wait for something to happen that would allow him to get Jesus into the picture at an opportune time. The other reason this would be a big mistake is that God had planned for Jesus to come and die and give us the grace and forgiveness, even before there was a history to govern. For example, in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace. Which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Two things from this. One is that from eternity God planned the death of Jesus for our sins. And the other is that God rules history and so accomplishes his plans without difficulty. So, why then is there a 2,000 year history of dealings with Israel before sending Jesus? into the world. God could have planned to send Jesus in Noah's day or just after the Tower of Babel or in the days of the bondage in Egypt. Why? Why the long delay? We need categories to help us understand Jesus. One answer is that when the Son of God comes into the world, there needs to be some categories in place that make sense He is and what He is coming to do. There needs to be a context for the Son of God which interprets why He is here and what He is doing. This is one of the reasons for the history of Israel and the record of the Old Testament. It gives us the context and the categories for understanding who Jesus is and why He came. We need to study for months or even years the Old Testament stories in order to give context for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine going into the main street of Wangaratta here today, talking to people on the street who've never heard that God created the world and that the world fell into sin and that God gave us a law for us to obey and that there were priests and sacrifices and prophets and kings in the people of God. How would they ever make sense of this? How would they make sense of Christ and why he came? If you try to skip the Old Testament and interpret Jesus within your own context first, without the biblical historical context and categories, you may portray him as a coach, or a therapist, or a good example, or a guru, or a mentor, or a hero, or even a trailblazer. There may be some truth in each of these, but they will not be as true and deep and authoritative and helpful as the categories that the Bible itself uses. In one category, he is our high priest. In our text today, we have one of those Old Testament categories for understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do, namely the category of high priest. Hebrews 4.14 Since then, we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. There are still high priests around today in many religions, but not in the so called traditional churches like we Baptists. Though this is a category for understanding a Jesus who is basically foreign to us. But God planned centuries of history with Israel, recorded in the Old Testament, so that we would have a context for understanding this category. That means He thinks it is really. Important, we would impoverish ourselves and swerve from the truth if we said, well, that's too old-fashioned and irrelevant for today. Nobody knows or cares what a high priest is. So let's just translate Jesus into one of our familiar categories, say a director of missions and ministries of the Baptist Union of Victoria, who just happens to be the Reverend Daniel Bullock right now. So instead, what we need to do before we jump into contemporary analogies is to go back to God's context, God's history and God's book and learn some deep and wonderful things that we might otherwise miss. Even to our peril, because high priest does not equal director of mission or any other analogy in our society. Our history is simply too limited to interpret Jesus. We need God's history. Our culture, our society, our era in time are always too limited to give the needed categories for grasping who Jesus is and what he came to do. I thank God for the book of Hebrews. It is tough going at times, but the riches of seeing Jesus the way God planned to show him as he designed the history and the religion of the Old Testament. It was all for Jesus. Jesus said in John 5:39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these. That bear witness of me. One way or another, it is all about Jesus. God was guiding the history of Israel as a backdrop to help make sense out of the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament is crucial background for going deep with the work of Jesus. Hebrews 5, 1, 3 says gives it gives us a little glimpse of who high priests were in the Old Testament's religious life. Verse 1 says that high priests came from among men and were appointed on behalf of the people to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for their sins. A whole world of meaning is opened up to us. There is a God and there is sin. This sin has created a barrier between God and the people he created. But God has made a provision for being reconciled to the people. He has ordained that there be human priests who would be a go-between and that these priests would offer sacrifices. There would be the shedding of blood, a kind of animal sacrifice. These would be substitute for the sinner. God would look upon these and turn his anger away from the people's sin. But built into these priestly systems were some inadequacies. The one we see here in Hebrews 5.3 is that the high priest was himself a sinner and had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. This meant not only that his sympathy would be imperfect and his presence in the holy place with God limited. It also meant that he would die and one day would have to be replaced. He could never guarantee an ongoing presence with God to intervene for the people. All the inadequacies of the old priesthood will be clear as we go forward in the book of Hebrews. But that's the point of the history of Israel. It is imperfect, inadequate and incomplete. It all points forward to something greater, to someone perfect and complete. It points to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our ultimate and perfect High Priest. In fact, even the sacrifices that the high priest offers point to Jesus because Jesus is such a perfect and complete fulfilment of this priesthood so that he is not only the high priest but he is also the sacrifice that the high priest gives, Hebrews 9.12. So let's look at what Hebrews 4.14-16 tells us about our perfect final high priest and what difference he makes in our 21st century lives. Verse 14, Jesus, the Son of God, is alive and with God. This verse tells us three crucial things. Jesus is alive, he is with God above the heavens, and he is the Son of God. So Jesus is alive, unlike all the other high priests that ever lived and died. Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead, never to die again. This is why the whole Old Testament system of the priesthood is over. Jesus is the final priest between man and God because he will never die. He has his priesthood as an indestructible life. Hebrews 7.16, we have a high priest and he is alive. He is also with God above the heavens. That That he passed through the heavens calls to mind the ascension as he left the disciples and rose through the clouds, through the sky into another realm, namely the presence of God. He is the son of God. He was not merely a human exalted to this priestly place. He is the divine son of God who created the earth and the heavens. Genesis 8:1-10. This gives his sacrifice its infinite worth. Jesus does not take the blood of bulls and goats into the heavenly temple. He does not even take the blood of a human. He takes his own precious blood, the blood of the Son of God. And when God the Father sees this sacrifice for our sin, he says, that is enough. The debt has been paid. My righteousness is vindicated. My glory is exalted. And he overlooks our punishable transgression and counts us as his loved and innocent children. So, our high priest is alive forevermore. He is is with God above the heavens in the holiest place in the universe. He is the very Son of God, pleading our case by his own blood. Verse 15 of chapter 4 says, Jesus, though tempted, never gave in to that temptation and so is sympathetic. Then also in verse 15, we learn that in spite of how lofty our high priest is, alive forevermore in the presence of God as the Son of God, nevertheless, these things about him still stand. He was tempted in all kinds of ways as we are. He never gave in to that sin and sinned. He is therefore sympathetic and understanding with us In our weaknesses. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can sympathise with us in our pain and our suffering, because he experienced excruciating pain and entered all the way into death. And he can sympathise with us in our allurements to sin because he was tempted. Jesus knows the battle. He fought it all the way to the end after he defeated that monster every time. So he was tested like we are. And the Bible says he is a sympathetic high priest who does not roll his eyes at your pain or click his tongue as you struggle with sin. So hold fast to your faith. Draw near to God, which all leads to this great, practical, relevant 21st century conclusion. Because he is alive and in the presence of God with the sacrifice of the blood of the Son of God and full of sympathy for his people, therefore, let us hold fast to our confession. And in verse 16, let us come, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. The confession is simply our unshakable hope that God is for us and will work to bring us into his final rest and joy. Hold fast to that because you have a great high priest. That's the first conclusion. In Aaron's series on Romans, we saw... We were being called to hold fast, to be diligent, to listen, and to being justified in God's sight. Here we see it again. Only here the writer is spreading out powerful reasons, not only for why you should hold fast to your confession, but also why you can. God is for you. You have a great high priest. He is alive. He is in the presence of God. He is the son of God. He is sympathetic. So hold fast to your hope. But what practically do you do with your hope? That's the last point. Verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Now listen, as we close, because this is incredibly important. Every one of us needs help. We are not God. We have needs. We have weaknesses. We have confusion. We have limitations of all kinds. We need help. But every one of us has something else. We have sin. And, th- and so we feel trapped. I need help to live my life, to handle death, to cope with eternity, help with my family, my spouse, my children, my loneliness, my job, my health, my finances. I need help. But I don't deserve the help I need. So what can I do? I can try to deny it all and be a Superman who doesn't need any help. Or I can try to drown it all and throw my life into a pool of sensual pleasures. Or I can simply give way to the paralysis of despair. But God declares over this hopeless conclusion, Jesus Christ became a high priest to shatter that despair with hope and to humble that superman or superwoman and to rescue that drowning wretch. Yes, we all need help. Yes, none of us deserves the help we need. But do not despair or give in to pride or doubt or self-pity. Look at what God says. Because we have a great high priest, the throne of God is a throne of grace. And the help we get at that throne is mercy and grace to help in time of need. Grace to help, not deserved help, gracious help. This is the whole point of the Old and the New Testaments. God planned for a high priest, a saviour, a redeemer, a gracious helper. You are not trapped. Say no to that lie. We all need help, but we don't deserve it. But we can all have it. You can have it right now and forever if you will receive and trust in your high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and draw near to God through him. Amen.